Forbidden Door episode of Breaking Kayfabe. With, but wait a minute. Did we already do a Forbidden Door episode, Barry? I'm trying to remember. I don't think an official Forbidden Door episode, but I actually got concerned as I hear you with well, this low voice. That I was, was my dramatic, uh, you know, oh, frightening, uh, Hitchcockian, if you will. Uh, so anyway, on episode 247, the Forbidden Door episode, I will be offering commentary on my thoughts to the pay-per-view. Uh, Barry, how was your enjoyment level as you watched and spent your $50? No, never mind. You didn't watch, did you? I did not. So well, I, uh, yeah, I spent the day with uh, the lovely Linda and my daughter Zoe. And Zoe's staying with me, Jeff, because my ex has COVID for the second time. And uh, Zoe's been with me uh, for the last three or four days and will continue. But I got to tell you, she heads off to college in about 45, 50 days. This is kind of a gift being able to. Uh, so to you're have telling me that you'd rather spend time with your <laughs> sainted daughter. And the new love, uh, well, uh, hard like of your life, then spent 50 bucks on a Forbidden Door pay-per-view. What kind of wrestling fan? Are you? I'm somewhere Jack Briscoe is just rolling his eyes. <laughs> he is, anyway, on this episode, you know, last week, Barry, we did the oldest match that we've ever done. I believe what? it's back to no, 62, 63. This week, we are not only going for uh, the, what they call the the recency uh, bias. We are going a match that I think took place like 10 days ago. We are going speedball, Mike Bailey. No, not that kind of speedball that some of you may have tried once or twice. That's what killed John Belushi. Speedball, Mike Bailey taking on. I'm going to fuck up this name, uh, Barry. Is it uh, Kaneska Kateshka? I don't know. But it was from San Francisco. We're going out to Sweet Lou's neighborhood, uh, June of this year, San Francisco, West Coast Pro. Uh, uh, the Melts gave it his match of the week, and it's a humdinger, Barry, I got to tell you. Yeah, it, it really is, too. And you're right about the names, too. Takeshita, I believe, is the last name. I you know, But it also makes me wonder, when we were talking off air, how many years have we been pronouncing Japanese names incorrectly, apparently? so uh, This I, is a professional yeah. podcast, as we have emphasized in the past. I blame McAdam. I do. You know, we should st just stick to wrestling because, you know, he pronounces everything correctly. So besides that match that we'll discuss, and it's a good one. We are also going to be featuring an interview we did recently with ooh, Barry, the flying Greek, Mike Pappas. Now, for those of you out there uh, who are going, who, who the heck is Mike? Mike Pappas, venerable veteran of the 70s, even the 60s wrestling wars, uh, now living uh, in Missouri somewhere. We had a very good conversation. Interesting guy, Barry. Yeah, what a sweetheart of a guy. And for me, it's always, like, again, the first time I saw Mike Pappas would have been 48 years ago. And, you know, being as a little kid, you know, you go to wrestling and you watch these guys in the ring and they're your heroes in a sense. They're larger than life back then. And, you know, growing up in Florida, Jeff, we didn't have a ton of professional sports. We had the Miami Dolphins and we had, right. So, you know, so things like professional wrestling, high lie you know, college sports, whatever. We had the ABA team, the Floridians, for a couple of years in the early 70s. But professional wrestling was such a big deal. And these guys were our heroes. And being able to actually have a conversation with a guy literally as uh, as big a heart as Mike Pappas has, which you're going to hear in this interview, to me is a real, real thrill. 
Yeah, interesting guy. Besides that, we're going to have a little food discussion. I always like to throw food topics at Barry. Do a little Florida man or not. I'm going to ask a question of the brother shippers for an upcoming episode. But Barry, let's talk about our match of the week now. So this took place in uh, June of this year. Barry, last time I checked, we're still in June. (laughs) Nothing is not timely, Barry. Yes. Tell us your thoughts on Speedball Mike Bailey versus Takeshka. So when I'm quoting here, Jeff called an audible on this one. Yes, I did. We had another match lined up, and he said, you know what? The praise of this match, Meltzer obviously said this is a great match. But online, the praise for this match is through the roof. And uh, you called the audible, and I was able to sit down and watch it. I actually went back and watched it a second time. And I think, uh, first off, yes, very good match, right? But it's – they don't – I'm trying to find the best way to phrase this as well. This is a – this is a highly unique match, and a lot of it has to do with Speedball Mike Bailey uh, because his style is so unique. It, it, in my opinion, he's a quicker, more effective Rob Van Dam. He doesn't quite have that personality that Rob had, which really, I think, endeared him to the audience. But the way he incorporates true karate and professional wrestling it's really something to see. And I've seen Mike Bailey. I saw him in person, actually. He was at the Impact tapings a couple of months ago when I went in Philadelphia. And while he looked good, my assumption with it is that his hands were tied, you know, because you watch him here where I'm saying, you know, my assumption is they're saying go for it. And holy shit, does he go for it? Uh, Takeshita is another guy that's just really incredible. And he's only recently got on the radar for, for people in the U S because he's made a couple of appearances on AEW. And I know Tony Khan brought him out a month or two ago and kind of gave him this rounding, you know, Oh, we're so fortunate to have Takeshita here and, and all that. But I know that he's done a couple of jobs and I I don't think they have a ton. uh, At least I don't, it doesn't appear that they're going to have a ton for him coming up. Put these two guys together, though, this was magic. And it, the the moves, everything that they were doing was absolutely incredible. You just alluded to it. You just mentioned it. Why speedball for Mike Bailey? I get that he's fast, but the drug reference to me is odd because is speedball is heroin and cocaine, Jeff. Is that correct? Well, I'm going to bow to your better knowledge. <laughs> Although I will say yeah. there are – Maybe one or two brother shippers that possibly could answer that question. No names. Yeah. So I that seems like an odd name. But again, we shouldn't focus on that. Uh, the venue. When we were talking about the venue. I, I actually was looking at this venue. And if you look at the, I guess, the backdrop, it, it appears to be like a Mexican village. It reminded me of the uh, the ride in Epcot. That you go through the El Rio. De- <laughs> it was like three amigos or something. It's, yeah, like it was that. really bizarre. It's like I'm looking, going, look at that ballroom. That is looks it, so what, weird. what is a plethora? What is a plethora? <laughs> now we're gonna that's start throwing out three movie. amigos quotes. That's a funny movie. That's a, that's an underrated funny movie. But the backdrop of this ballroom, which is odd because you've got this backdrop, which makes it looks like that that ride in in Epcot where you can eat, you know, at El Rio de Tiempo or something similar to it. 
And uh, but then you've got these fancy chandeliers hanging down. So the venue looks odd, though. I did find it kind of intriguing. Very small. Veda Scott on commentary. Veda is unique to me, and I didn't think she did a great job on commentary either. But she was one of these these wrestlers five, ten years ago that people were predicting. Well, Veda Scott, pretty good. She had a good look to her. She had kind of the librarian look. She would wear a plaid skirt, maybe a schoolgirl look. She would wear dark, dark rimmed glasses. Uh, I remember our old friend Eric um, Cholminski having this massive crush on her as well. She's okay on commentary. I didn't think she was fantastic. She's doing color, so it's not, uh, you know, anything. There are some great, I will say her knowledge of professional wrestling. She, she's done her research. There's a point where Takeshita is doing suplex after suplex. Veda Scott pulls out of nowhere that apparently Takeshita has written a thesis on the German suplex because he respects it so much. Now, I've never heard of something like that, but... Uh, that's that's re- solid intel. That's, that's pretty solid, right? You're in, And also, for Takeshita to be respecting the German suplex, to write a thesis on it, I thought was great. He then does a superplex off the top rope, which I thought was just a thing of beauty. So Speedball does the Navarro special, and this really I popped for. I'm assuming that it, this is named after Negro Navarro, who is a submission specialist in Lucha Libre. But he does this, and I I don't know how you even describe this maneuver. He locks up the legs almost like an Indian death lock and then does what appears to be like a roll with it. That just seems like that can go 50 ways sideways and all all them wrong. Takeshita does this belly-to-back suplex from his knees. Now, I'm not making that up, and they make a big deal about it. He's on his knees. Bailey is in a sitting position in the ring. From his knees, Takeshita then suplexes him directly over his head. Bailey does appear to land on his head and is holding his neck. I don't know if I've ever seen anything ever like that before. This is a great match. My takeaway from this match is it's only a matter of time until these two guys are getting a push somewhere. Somewhere on a bigger national stage than, say, this uh, this venue that ho- seems to hold a couple hundred people. And I know that Lou was telling us that they, they count on uh, on the revenue stream being buys that you can go through, uh, you know, you can buy it online. I don't know exactly how all that and, works. And apparently, as Lou pointed out, that's part of the reason why they're able to get, uh, you know, on the indie scene, some of the bigger names on the indie scene is through the income they're making through the streaming. And that makes a lot of sense, too, that absolutely through the streaming, correct. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, But these two guys, I would say with Bailey, Bailey has got dollar signs written all over him. The only thing I might do is I might say maybe he might want to hit the weight machine a little bit. His body for his face, uh, he doesn't look – he's in great shape too, right? Obviously doing what he's doing, but he doesn't look like that. You know, Maybe a little bit of weight training, but don't overdo it because you don't want to destroy what you got going here. Takeshita is – so Takeshita reminds me of Tanahashi 10 years ago, and that's what I see. And he does a lot of things similar. There's a similar look. But he is – I think he's absolutely going to be the future of some promotion. I'm assuming Tony Khan has got both these guys on his radar. I think it's only a matter of time. Huge thumbs up for this match, Jeff. Well, if there's one thing Tony Khan needs, it's more guys in the promotion. Uh, Actually, based on the amount of injuries they've been having recently, uh, maybe that's not a bad idea. Hold on. We have breaking news right here. What's that? What was it? Don't know. 
or it wasn't mentioned in the match. Sweet Lou with breaking news. He's breaking kayfabe here on breaking kayfabe. Oh, yeah. He's in a big way. Veda Scott and Speedball Mike Bailey got married recently. You know what that tells me? She really enjoyed that match. She did. And Sweet Lou also saying, hasn't Takeshita wrestled on AEW TV recently? Lou, you should pay attention when I'm talking to you occasionally (laughs) because I just mentioned that. So, yes. (laughs) How dare dare you, Lou? How dare you? You know, uh, and and Sweet Lou telling us before we began recording that uh, this uh, venue uh, literally 10 minutes away from the sainted Kippelman household. So, you know, we're going to expect Lou to, uh, you know, uh, apparently he went to his sister's wedding. He's done some public interaction. Uh, fear of the COVID out there. And so uh, Lou is going to be uh, doing some social distancing, perhaps going to a future uh, West Coast Pro uh, match. So here are my thoughts. I, I really like your uh, your Rob Van Dam thing there. I think that that's kind of spot on. You know what I liked about this match? I like the fact that literally in, uh, you know, 20, 25 minutes, you see so many different things happening style-wise. You've got uh, chain wrestling going on. You have striking going on. You have like uh, lucha libre spots. Like you, there is so much shit thrown in this match. And when I say that, I mean that in a completely positive way. They are making all this stuff that they're doing, all these different styles that they're incorporating. They're making it work, which really is a huge thumbs up for both guys that they're able to do this and incorporate this. Uh, the only thing I would say regarding your Tanahashi uh, thing. Uh, I don't know if it's 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago when Tanahashi was uh, not necessarily a young boy, but was really first emerging as a star in New Japan. I could see that because, uh, you know, there's a lot of physical similarities, the hair, uh, you know, the the physique. He's not as quite as jacked in the chest as Tanahashi, but I, I can see that. So I really enjoyed this match. Uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, the melts uh, in the observer puts out a match of the week every single week. And I really, it was just like, I've never heard really of these two guys. It wasn't like I saw the names and like, Oh yeah, those guys, you know, Uh, of course, Takesh guy I've seen on AEW now that you mention it, but it wasn't a name that, you know, jumped off the page as something. Oh yeah. I know these two guys. I want to definitely check this out. And I took kind of a leap of faith. And yes, I called an audible, uh, you know, and I'm glad I did because I think this is a uh, something that maybe not a lot of people would have had access to or would have seen. Uh, it is out there. We'll post a link on our Facebook group, Brewery and KV Babatter and Perry. And uh, if you've never seen these two guys, check it out. It's an indie match, so it has the limitations uh, of an indie match. And I mean that like as far as. Uh, number one, the venue, uh, uh, the, the crowd and stuff like that. They're not, you know, out there in front of 15,000 people with the natural feedback that you get from a crowd that size. So there are those limitations, but also uh, there are certain positives that you get by not being on the large. These guys are basically throwing, like I said, everything out there. And it really, it's sort of like taking a bunch of stuff, putting it in a blender and, you know, whirling it around. And you come out and you're like, holy shit, this is pretty damn good, you know? And so we'll post a link to this match, which took place just like literally 10 days ago. Uh, and it's out there. And I really think you, uh, you would enjoy it. Uh, kind of think outside the box. Give these two guys a chance. And I really think you'll find this match worthy and you'll have a good time. So now let's keep with the wrestling theme, Barry. Ah, 
let's talk. You see what I did there? It's a smooth transition, my man. Nice. Let's let's talk a little AEW New Japan Forbidden Door, Barry. So I had a chance to watch this. So here's what I told Barry. You know, he asked me. He says, "Oh, so you, you bought the pay per view?" And I said, "Yeah, you know." And uh, I was uh, with Mrs. Bowdrin last night in the living room, and uh, it's coming up time for the pay per view. And I said, "Oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this pay per view." She's like, "Oh, okay, you know." And and I said, "You know, I've been thinking all day about whether or not I was gonna purchase this thing." I was like, "Ah, well, you know, there's like all those injuries." Uh, there's guys that I really like that that aren't going to be on the show. No Brian Danielson, no Punk, uh, a couple of the Japanese guys, Ishii and uh, uh, Takahashi is not going to be there. So that's kind of disappointing. But then, you know, I started thinking, I was like, you know, this is the exact kind of shit that I have been wanting other promotions to do. You know, at WCW, uh, they did it with New Japan, like uh Good Lord, Barry, which has been like 27 years ago, I think. It was like, I think it was 95. 95 was was that long ago, Barry. Oh, my God. That is scary, happened. isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, so I thought to myself, this is exactly what I wanted a promoter to do. I absolutely have to support this and put out my hard-earned <clears throat> $50, the hard lucre, as I say, Barry. So, yes, I paid for the pay-per-view. Uh, you know, Barry, of course, is out there with the ladies. He, you know, he can't be bothered with the uh, the paper. But, you know, I will say, all joking aside, Barry, as I was reading some of the, the comments uh, online about the pay-per-view, uh, I saw people saying that this very well may have been I won't say it's the greatest pay-per-view of all time, but it's in the conversation as far as, uh, you know, the quality of the matches, because, you know, as I was thinking about what was the worst match on the card, okay, and uh, of course, obviously, I'm not a huge fan of uh, the women's matches and stuff like that, so uh, I wasn't a big fan of... uh, uh, what's your, what's the girl from San Antonio? Uh, that's under Rosa thing. Uh, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of their women. So, you know, but it wasn't a bad match. Okay. The other match that I thought was probably the least of the matches was the young bucks match. So if a young bucks match is like in the conversation for one of the lesser matches on the card. And again, there was nothing wrong with that match. It was just not as spectacular as some of the other stuff. That kind of points out that it's a pretty damn good match or a pretty damn good card when the Young Bucks match uh, is in the conversation for being one of the least, uh, you know, effective matches on the card. One of the things I absolutely was so happy to see, and I texted somebody this morning and told him about it. Uh, it actually, I'll, I'll say it. It was our old friend, Kevin Kelly. I texted him. And I said, no, it was a great show. I really loved it. I completely loved that 16,000, which is what they announced the crowd was at the United Center, 16,000 people during the main event of John Moxley uh, and Tanahashi were chanting, let's go ace. They're cheering for the Japanese guy. They're cheering. Uh, they're, they're using his nickname that they use in Japan for him. And I said, holy crap, that made me pop, Barry. 16,000 people in Chicago, Illinois, cheering for a Japanese. It wasn't like a babyface heel kind of thing. You know, they were cheering for the Japanese guy uh, who was at that point in the match, kind of the underdog. Uh, He was, you know, had some stuff going against him. Moxley had the advantage. And these fans in Chicago are cheering for the Japanese guy, Barry. It was a great moment. Well, so the and I see this criticism. I saw this, I believe, uh, in another wrestling group this week. And it said there are other wrestling groups there. 
wrestling. Yeah, well, and we don't, I don't really consider ours a pure wrestling. Well, it's not, but but someone who does stick to wrestling, it was in one of those groups. <laughs> and what the person said was, why would Tony Khan bring out all these people that the the audience doesn't know? Maybe Takesh is one of them, and I forget who he was talking about. And, uh, and it might have been somebody like Aussie Open or somebody, but he was referring to – uh, the overbooking of AEW the last few weeks as they were prepping for Forbidden Door. And it, that just clearly says to me, you don't understand. And whether you like AEW or hate them, it doesn't matter. But it, he, Tony Khan is putting forth a product for a very select audience. And, you know, when it, even when a guy like, uh, who was it? Was it Bandito or Desperado? Desperado came. It was like, you know, the place still went nuts. Like they were like, you know, it's like that's he's booking to his audience. Now, is that a good idea long term? Maybe not, because I don't know how you grow the product, but this could be part of his business plan. But to that end, it's very smart, because as you just said, you're in America. You've got essentially what are two baby faces, but the crowd, which is probably you know, if if they're Japanese, what's the audience in the building that's Japanese? Five percent, maybe ten percent. I mean, it's not a lot. They're cheering the Japanese guy, even though the two combatants are both baby faces. What that says is you have a smarter wrestling audience. One of the knocks on the WWE and even AEW at times is, uh, and it's really been for anything. WWE fans don't always know about other wrestling products. They don't have any idea. And that's a very common theme that you see all the time that, you know, even the other day I was reading an article and it was discussing, it was discussing somebody in AEW that was either gone or something had happened to them. I forget what the storyline was. And they called the person ex WWE star. And it it wasn't for not knowing that they're in AEW because they clearly didn't. It's the same way that that's how they see things. So I think that's great. I think that's what separates AEW apart from every other wrestling company for what you just said, Jeff. Well, and, you know, the uh, leading up to the pay-per-view, I had read some stuff that this was not a uh, complete Chicago crowd. Like there were people flying in. From different parts, you know, back in the day, Barry, that's what we did. You know, sure. it wasn't to this uh, degree, but there were thousands of people that came in from different parts of the country, uh, in part because it was an AEW pay-per-view, uh, pay and in part because there were these Japanese guys that were out there that, you know, holy shit, I'm, I'm able to see, uh, you know, Tanahashi wrestle. This is a guy that I've watched, uh, you know, tapes of for years, and I never thought I'd get to see him. And there, it's interesting because there was a moment uh, later in the show, uh, Will Ospreay uh, wrestled Orange Cassidy. I have to tell you, I have in the past kind of shit on Orange Cassidy. Sure. The character, that kind of little baby kicks and stuff like that, which I think are kind of stupid. But he went out there, and I really think Will Ospreay, if he's not the best wrestler in the world right now, he's got to be in the conversation. He's absolutely fucking amazing. And whether it was Will Ospreay being that great and carrying Orange Cassidy through this amazing match or whether Orange Cassidy is good enough that he held his own. And he did. He did some really nice things in the match. Okay. But so they have this amazing match. Okay. And then at the end of the match, there's a, you know, like a, the Will Ospreay and the guys are kind of standing. Oh, I know what they're doing. They were standing over Orange Cassidy and they begin ripping the pockets, you know, cause he puts the hand in the pockets and stuff like that. So they're ripping the pockets off his jeans and uh, 
uh, talking about mispronouncing guys' names, uh, Katsuhori Shibata, uh, who is, of course, uh, one of the trainers in the uh, the New Japan Dojo in Los Angeles. But uh, he's a guy that a couple years ago suffered a, uh, a, a debilitating concussion where he basically had to check out of wrestling. Uh, and people thought that literally they were never going to see the guy again. And when he walked out to the entrance ramp and then began doing a run-in to uh, go in and, and grab uh, Cassidy away from Will Ospreay's guys, the place absolutely lost their shit. And I po- I posted in the group, I said, holy cow, Shibata showed up. And there was a guy in the crowd holding up a sign that said, if Shibata shows up, I'm going to cry. And they, <laughs> they, they turned, and there's the guy. Who, so, you know, there are people out there that have an interest in seeing uh, this New Japan stuff. Now, let's talk about the other advantage. Were, uh, I got. I just want to piggyback sure. on that. If I had known Shibata, Shibata was my before he retired was my favorite wrestler probably in the world. You you look a badass in the dictionary. There's fucking Shibata's face. The toughest guy, you know, and the, the style he was wrestling absolutely put him on the shelf for almost five years. Yeah, uh, I would have absolutely watched it had I known Shibata. How did he look overall? So no, he did he did good. He did some spots with Will Ospreay and stuff like that. Uh, but one of the really cool things, uh, and this is strictly an AEW based thing. Uh, so if you don't watch AEW, you're not going to get this reference. So at the end, he's chased him off, and he's got his back turned to Orange Cassidy. Orange Cassidy's standing up, and now you know here's the the moment. Is Cassidy and Shibata going to face off? You know what's going to happen? And he slow he does this great slow turn, and he sees Cassidy looking at him. And Cassidy's kind of giving him the stare down. And then Cassidy goes to pull out the sunglasses, okay? Because he always wears the sunglasses. And just as he goes to put them on his face, he stops. He turns and looks at the camera. And then the camera pulls back. And he puts the sunglasses on Shibata's face. And Shibata turns and looks at the camera wearing Orange Cassidy's sunglasses. And the crowd absolutely loses. And then Orange Cassidy gives a thumbs up. Crowd loses their shit. It was really a strong moment. so here's one of the other things that I want to talk about is, you know, you were saying, what's the benefit to Tony Khan of this? So we've mentioned on a few times, and, and you know, I think uh, I, I actually reached out to Melter and asked Melter this, and he said it was true. AEW has kind of a bloated roster, okay? Yes. Even with buying ROH and, uh, you know, they allow their guys to appear in different promotions, uh, you know, on more of a low, like a West Coast pro kind of things. But, you know, to me, we have said before that somebody like, you know, we mentioned Dante Martin. Dante Martin would be absolutely extraordinary for Dante Martin to go over for six months and live in Japan and work for New Japan uh, and train with the guys in New Japan. And then he comes back. He's been gone for six months. He's had six months of experience working with some of the greatest wrestlers in the world. And then you turn that guy into a star. Okay. Whether you heal him up or make him this high flying baby face, whatever you do. I mean, that's guy. He goes away, he comes back, and you make him a star. Likewise, there are guys in Japan that, you know, that uh, they wanted. They, there was a young guy whose father is, uh, uh, Lou, maybe you can help me out here. His father is uh, Red Shoes, the referee. And he was he worked the card last night uh, in the uh, six-man tag that, that opened the show and was uh, did a very nice job. That's a guy that New Japan could send over here. Have worked six months. He works in the ROH rings. He works uh, in the the AEW rings, gets to learn some different styles, goes back in six months to a year to New Japan, 
All of a sudden, he becomes a star in New Japan. You give each other's promotion various little rubs with some of the younger performers. And that's something that you can do when your promotion has is top-heavy with uh, your talent. And you know, especially you know when you have all these injuries happening, which is another thing. Uh, Shota Umino, thank you very much, Lou. I appreciate that. That's the guy that is uh, Red Shoes' son. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of. I really liked the opening six man, which was uh, oh, it was Jericho, Sammy, and uh, Minoru Suzuki, uh, and they were taking on uh, Umino. Oh God, who else was uh, uh, Eddie Kingston? And who's the third guy that I can't think? Anyway, it was a really, really good opening match. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is a great way to start the pay-per-view. And there wasn't really, I can happily say in this entire pay-per-view, there wasn't a dog in the bunch bear. That's huge. And that's huge. So questions I have for you. So, and I, so I, I should say too, look, it's obvious, uh, that Jeff and I are both fans of AEW. We wanted to succeed. It's, it's answered a lot of the uh, the prayers uh, that we've had for professional wrestling in this country for years, but we should be fair when it comes to criticism. And I, I do think over the last few weeks, the AEW, especially Dynamite, has been way overbooked and also incorrectly. It's just every match that was going to be at Forbidden Door, any of the contestants, there was a run-in with other people, and that's fine, but it was like two or three matches per show, like over like a two or three week period, that's way, in my opinion, you're doing that way too much. It's, and that, that's something where I think Tony Khan is going to mature as he is, he's in this position even longer. But again, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to see that a couple of notes that I did, I, I saw a lot of photos and I saw some mocking of Tony Khan today. This is where I'll defend him. And it was Tony Khan hugging uh, Cesaro, Claudio Castagnoli, I believe is what he's going by now, and then hugging somebody else. And his eyes are closed. He looks like he's even crying. And people are really taking shots at him. And it's, you know, for years, you've got a guy like Vince McMahon. And look, if Vince is guilty of 10% of what he's been accused of over the years, he's a horrific person. I believe that number is even much higher. Even recently, when it comes to television, Vince is more about getting himself on TV than now and forever as he's facing these allegations than really anything else. It's not even the welfare of the company. It's all about Vince's ego. Tony Khan seems like a guy that generally loves professional wrestling, had the money uh, and the resources to start his own business and his own promotion. We should be embracing that, but he does appear to be a real wrestling fan. Not a guy, and obviously he wants to be successful, but he, he appears to be a, a real diehard fan, and I have such respect for that on so many different levels. But I will say the TV appearances of Tanahashi and Okada maybe left me uh, – left a little bit to be desired. Now, let me quantify that. Tanahashi appears – and you tell me if I'm wrong, This and let's go off of last night because I'm only going off of what I saw on TV. It appears that during COVID, maybe Tanahashi didn't hit a lot of gyms, but he was certainly in, indulging in ice cream. And he just appeared to be a little out of out of weight, a little overweight, not in great shape, still big and bulky, but in, in a different way. Okada, and I'm going off of what I saw last Wednesday, Okada just appeared appeared a little lost. 
if that's the right, like it was maybe too much was taking place and he just appeared. He appeared to be out of his element. How were both last night? Were my observations correct or was it different on the on the pay-per-view? I will say that the way they introduced the guys, uh, you know, by having them do run-ins or just show up at the top of the ramp like they do with Zack Sabre Jr., uh, which didn't make any sense at all to me. Here he is, the greatest technical wrestler in the world is the way they're they're doing the introduction of him. And it's like, it's Zack Sabre. His opponent, uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is. You got you to gotta buy the pay-per-view to see. Uh, you know, and that, it's like, what? why did they bring Zack Sabre right, out? So let you me know? ask you a question on that yeah. one, too. This hypothetical more buy rates if we keep it a surprise. More buy rates if we announce the name ahead of time. Uh, well, think about it. I this would say way. you're going to get more if you announce the guy's name. Yeah, well, well, have, yeah. let, let's put it this way. If we had a guy that we lined up that we thought was a really good guest, okay, and we said, oh, yeah, we've got this guy that uh, is really going to, he's like one of the greatest technical wrestlers uh, in the world. And you guys are going to be absolutely amazed. And I guarantee it. We're not going to tell you who it is. You, you got to tune into next week's show. Like, does that mean more to people that listen to our show? Or would it mean more if we said, oh, it's going to be so-and-so, this guy, you know, who we've never had on the show before, you know, it, I guess there's two school of thoughts and it's just a matter of opinion. I, I mean, I totally get what you're saying that, you know, like if we tell them, Hey, we've got uh, you know, triple H. Okay. People are going to go, Holy shit. Wow. That's, that's kind of a good get for you guys. Uh, you know, or if we had triple H, we're like, Oh, this guy's going to blow your mind. Uh, but we're not going to tell you who it is. Well, you're going to have a certain percentage that are going to be like, well, I'm really kind of curious. Who do they got? But then, of course, you're also going to have the, the people that are going to go, oh, fuck Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, they're not going to tell me who it is. I'm not going to listen. Just out of spite. I can't believe people would be spiteful to us, Barry. But, you know, there are those people out there. Uh, I think uh, last night on the show, um, I don't think a four-way match is the best use of Okada. I think Okada's matches, uh, it's one of the New Japan um sort of trademarks is the slow build to a great match. Right. And I think putting him in the ring, uh, all four guys in that match are, you know, Jay White, uh, Adam Cole, Bay Bay, uh, you know, um, Okada and, um, holy fuck. I can't remember the, who the last four, the last fourth guy is. Um, Oh, uh, Adam page. They're all great. Okay. Uh, but, it just didn't work. And I, especially because, you know, maybe, maybe it's a match that Okada has never been in. You know, I saw someone point out today that uh, four guys in the ring, it should be a tag match, not a, not a four way match. And I think you have to have guys that are sort of familiar, if you will, with the parameters of what they're dealing with and how to work the match. Uh, it wasn't a, you know, it's not, wasn't one of the worst matches on the card. I don't want to say that it had an ending. I don't know if you read this very, apparently Adam Cole got hurt Yeah, uh, and they had to do like sort of a rush go home ending. Uh, and uh, so, you know, when it, when it first happened, I went, Oh, wait a minute, something, something went wrong there because not only it, it looked like the, uh, the three count wasn't really a three count. And right after the, the count, Jay White goes over to the referee, kind of covers his, his mouth and says something. And then the referee goes back and said, and I was like, ah, something's going on there. They're having a conversation about that finish. And, you know, I didn't know if it was a botch finish. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, I find out that Adam Cole is, is injured in some way. I, I read something that potentially, maybe, possibly uh, there was a concussion or a fear of a concussion. Uh, that might have been part of it. Uh, I will tell you that uh, the other four-way match that they had that involved uh, Pac. Uh, Alistair Black, 
Rusev. Why am I calling him? Uh, <laughs> Miro. What? Miro. I'm calling him his WWE name. Uh, and again, who's the fourth Clark guy? Clark Connors. Clark Connors. Yes. Yeah. That match was a four-way match that to me had a much better flow to it. And I completely popped because I was thinking this is uh, Alistair Black or Miro. They're going to win the title. And they gave the, the title to Pac, which I, it was a nice little surprise. I didn't see it coming. I'd never heard of Clark Connors. I'm going to say maybe 5% of the people in that building last night had heard of Clark, Clark Connors. Uh, guys showed me a lot. They gave him a moment where all of a sudden he was whooping everyone's ass. They gave him his moment to kind of put a little shine on him. That was nicely done. Uh, but uh, that was a that was an example of a match I really liked with kind of a surprise finish. Uh, lastly, the, uh, the talk about you were talking about uh, Tanahashi did a look over. He when the match started, I'm watching the match and I'm going. Yeah, you know, Tanahashi, those legs, and they made a reference to the fact that his knees are shot from all the years of doing the high fly flow. And so I'm going, you know, is this the right guy to put in this match with Moxley? And they kind of slowly started getting into the match and in the flow of the match, and they're going and they're going and they're going, and they got faster and faster and faster. And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy that was uh, the le- is the legend of New Japan, and he's showing it. And the way they did the match, I was extremely impressed. Now, Moxley, I don't know if you've seen the photos. Holy shit, did he hit a gusher? Uh, uh, I, I mean, he, it was like blood where it was kind of like it made you a little bit uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. And then, like, the blood got all over Tanahashi, his chest, and, you know, he's doing moves, and you see, the, like, he's got uh, Moxley's blood on his back, too. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like a little bit sickening. And, you know, uh, it was well done. A lot of people complain because at the end of the match, they do a, they did a run in with uh, Jericho uh, and, uh, you know, his guys to attack them. And yeah, that was more to set up uh, this week's dynamite, I'm sure. Uh, but they were like, you know, why couldn't they have just finished off the pay-per-view? Maybe it was like kind of to stretch things out until the, uh, the, the streaming, uh, you know, time limit or whatever. I don't know. But I would have uh, liked to have seen them not have that whole running thing and and uh, all that because of course they've they're building up the uh, Jericho Eddie Kingston issue that they're going to do uh, at the time this comes out it'll be tomorrow night uh, so overall very very positive reaction uh, definitely in my opinion one of the uh, one of the better uh, slash best pay per views I've ever seen uh, this was uh, much better than the AEW pay per view I'm in my opinion that they had last month uh i will be interested there's already supposedly negotiations for a uh, forbidden door or two which will take place next year i certainly hope that they have guys that are back healthy uh and the injury bug that currently has bitten them in the ass uh will not be uh as big a part of next year's show as it was last night's barry yeah and i uh yeah, how, what time did the pay-per-view end last night uh i want to say 11 40 11 45 ish so that's not terrible. Like, no, gee, no, I think it wasn't the it? last one. Oh right. my God, the last one was like the never-ending story, man. It just when the fuck is this going to end? And not because it was a, a you know bad, and I'm forcing myself to watch it. It was just like there's so much content, and you know, like at some point you got to like sit there and go, eh, okay, that 25 uh, minute match here you planned out, it's going to be 20 now because of our time limitation. You need to do something. And you know, we complained and bitched about the fact, that, at least I did, that you know, in a in a pay per view that went that long. They had matches that had no business being on a pay-per-view. Hello, I'm talking to you, Jade Cargill. But um, this one, they had the uh, the Thunder Rosa match with Tony Storm, which, as I said, I'm not a huge fan of the women's uh, stuff in uh, AEW. But 
This was not a bad match at all. Uh, you know what they were. Uh, you know what they presented wasn't. It wasn't like you sit there and you go, hey, "Oh my god, this is this is hard to watch." You know. So let me ask you a question about that. So the two questions. Uh, first, and I'll I'll start off with her Thunder Rosa. Is it is it just me, or I want to see if this is general opinion? Is she lackluster as the champion? Where Britt Baker truly brought even Jade Cargill, her mat her matches aren't good, but she certainly has this aura about her. You know, looks amazing, can actually cut a promo. I like the gimmick, etc. Thunder Rosa to me, I just and she's a fine worker. So let let me take that right off the table. There just appears to be no excitement, no enthusiasm with her her world title reign. Would you agree with that or no? I mean, you know, she. From what I see, the reaction she gets in the building, she gets a good reaction. It's not like everyone's sitting on their hands when she comes to the ring. Right. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, Pavlovian. The music, you know, hits and everyone immediately jumps up. That's the world of wrestling that's been created over the last, you know, uh, 40, you know, 40 years is like that music hits and, you know, the big screen shows someone's image or, you know, their their trademark and everyone stands up to see, you know, it's like the Royal Rumble. Every two minutes, they stop looking at what's going on in the ring. And they turn and see who's making the uh, the the ring entrance. So I see when Serena Deeb comes down, you know she gets certainly a reaction. Again, she's not a quote unquote bad worker. I'm not saying that at all, but it's sort of like you know I, I think your point is valid. I don't know that the people care enough about her right. to you know like like whether you like Britt Baker or you hate her. Yep. She provo- she provokes a reaction. Yep. You know, you either want to see her. You're in Pittsburgh. You're fucking Javorsky. You've spent some money to go to a card, and you want to see Britt Baker defend the good, you know, good name of Pittsburgh, uh, and and kick someone's ass. Or you're uh, somewhere else, and uh, you know, you go to uh, Cleveland or something, and you hate anything Pittsburgh related, and so you want to, you know, you want to see Britt Baker get her ass kicked. She provokes a reaction, which is exactly what you want. I don't know if Thunder Rosa causes that same reaction from people i don't see it and that's where and i think that's part of it and probably following up on brit is a big thing because she as you said clearly whether you love her or hate her she was getting a huge reaction everywhere that she went but i line this up uh as a parallel to adam page and i i would say from again my perspective his title reign was a complete nutter failure and you know i i think um, the first mistake was uh, his first match as champion, I think was a draw, and he he only had I think two successful title defenses. It just there was just nothing there to me. Adam Page would do better as a guy as the Dusty Rhodes chasing the title, and uh, you know, and they obviously took it off him for a reason. Interesting that he wasn't in the mix per se for the world title that it was going to Moxley or Tanahashi they kept Adam Page totally out of it and I do find that very very telling well, uh, I, I think with I think with Adam Page <clears throat> excuse me I think what they were looking for is they wanted a world champion that they created you know and, and right. I can completely see the the logic in that you know like if they had immediately given the title to a former WWE guy it would just be oh that's some guy that couldn't make it in the WWE and now he's their world champion. And so how lame does that look? And, you know, now you've got a guy that pretty much he, he made his bones in new Japan uh, over there. And now he comes over there. He's a guy that is not immediately familiar 
to a nationwide uh, you know, audience here in the United States. So it's a guy they've created. He becomes their world champion. Now let's see what happens to your, uh, you know, your comment. Was it a uh, booming success? Eh, apparently not. Uh, you know, and sometimes you try, a, you know, you try something and it doesn't work and you go back and you try it again. You know, I mean, how many failed gimmicks did uh, uh, guys like uh, Mark Callis have and Steve Austin before they hit the lotto with The Undertaker and Stone Cold? You know, I mean, shit happens. Maybe Adam, you know, Adam Page will kind of reinvent himself, do something different. Uh, a year from now, all of a sudden, boom, he hits the lotto with the fans. He connects in a way that, uh, you know, it's, and let me just say, this is not like a guy that I don't think connected with the fans. I think he connected with the fans, maybe not just to the degree that they hoped he would. Yeah, and that's it. But I, again, I think he was connecting big time prior to winning the title. And then even in the beginning, people were all down with the Cowboys shit. He was getting a huge pop, and it's almost like he wasn't being booked correctly. But it is interesting that they didn't even consider him to be in the mix for the world title. And if you look at who the world champions have been, Jericho in the beginning, you know, Moxley, Kenny Omega, Adam Page, CM Punk, and now Moxley again, where do they go next? Where do they go from here? I love the additions of uh, Cesaro. I guess Claudio Castagnoli. I don't know what they're calling him. I love him in AEW. I love, obviously, uh, da Brian Danielson in AEW. But these are the two guys that are in the same club, the Blackpool Combat Club with Moxley. I, you know, I always feel... You know, WWE did something right. Of course, it turned around and bit them right in the ass. But they pulled up Finn Balor, Prince Fergal Devitt, from NXT years ago. And like his first match in, he won the Universal title, right? Got injured, had to relinquish the title. So it didn't go anywhere. But I like that. I like the thought of it's a guy's first night in the company. And a guy like Cesaro I mean, there's not, you know, everybody's on the face of the earth that if you're a wrestling fan is going to know who he is. So bring him in, have him win the title on the first night. And I realized that wasn't the place last night, but I, I think you've got so much talent that I sometimes wonder are the right champions in place. And I don't know if Moxley's the right guy. And I say this because Moxley strikes me as a bruiser Brody type. Doesn't need a belt. Doesn't need a title. He's he gets this huge reaction wherever he is. The fans are fully bought in and invested into what he's doing and his character. He's Andre the Giant. He doesn't need a title. He's already over with the crowd. Give it to somebody else who, again, a Danielson, who they say every week is probably the best wrestler in the world. We hear it every single week. So why isn't he in the mix for this? And maybe he will be. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he and Mox will break up. I don't know. But I do think I, I would book things a little differently. And I'm not, look, I'm no genius booker like you are. <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, there are a lot of adjustments I would make. So let me ask you something. I'm not saying that the trigger is ready to be pulled now, okay? But what do you think? Because I got to tell you, one of the things, you know, we talk about things that they've done incorrectly. One of the things I think that they are absolutely doing perfectly is the way they're booking Wheeler Udo. Oh, yeah. And so what do you think as the guy uh, that is sort of comes out of nowhere Okay, and uh, all of a sudden, Wheeler Yuta becomes your world champion. Again, I'm not saying this now, but I'm talking about this is the guy, the crowd 
if you see the reactions he gets in the building, they're going ape shit for this guy when he comes out. Because and this is a guy that is a homegrown product. So if you want to go with a guy that's not uh, doesn't have that WWE stamp on his back, this is a guy that's a homegrown product. If they take their time, they build this guy up, you know, some more. They give him some impressive wins over people that are like, you know, like I said last night, uh, the pack win to me just kind of came completely out of nowhere. And I I really like that. So if Wheeler Yuta is booked properly and all of a sudden Wheeler Yuta gets the shot at the title, uh, not necessarily against Moxley, but against somebody and wins the title. Now you've got another homegrown product that you're trying it with. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great idea. Look, and they've so I'm I'm being critical of AEW, but let's let's say something positive. Their booking of Wheeler Yuta to me is textbook perfect. I, I think they've done a great job. And this kid, and look, a lot of it's gonna be Wheeler Yuta as well. They recognize he's capable of uh of going all out, but he's he's made himself a star as well. Like Wheeler Ute is absolutely there. Is he at that level? Not yet, obviously. But in another year, the way he's going or two years, because, again, the crowd's taken to him. He's having good matches and he has that enthusiasm. He's got that. You can beat the shit out of me, but I'm still going to show up. I'm still going to do this. And I think that actually resonates with the crowd. But I like that. I I think Wheeler Ute and I think they see that, too, Jeff. I think Wheeler Ute is a if everything stays on on track. Wheeler Yuta is a is a future world champion for AEW. And I, and I think what they do just as an idea here is like maybe he wins the tag team titles with somebody, you know, uh, and he gets a, a run as a tag team champion for a few months. And then uh, all of a sudden, a few months down the road, he gets a uh, like one of their, uh, you know, like all Atlantic title that they just came up with last night, you know, one of their smaller uh, titles. Uh, just so it's like, you know, something like you got the ROH belt, uh, you know, right. whatever that is. And but you slowly and it's funny because as we're recording, I'm sitting here and my TV in the background is, is talking about Bret Hart uh, on AEW. And the way that uh, the WWE uh, very nicely did the slow build where Bret was the tag team champion. Then he became the intercontinental champion. And he had all those things to build him up to where then he became eventually the WWE champion. So I, I think, and I'm not comparing Bret Hart to Wheeler Yuta. I'm just talking about it as a potential idea for a push. So uh, yeah, so uh, interesting things going on uh, in AW, a pay per view. Uh, if you get a chance to watch it, this is money that is well spent. Uh, if you are a fan of AW, obviously, if you're one of those people, and we have them in our group, AW sucks. Hey, I hate these guys. You know, then don't fucking spend your money on it. If you're a fan and you did not get a chance to watch it, uh, Barry Rose. I am putting it out there. I'm recommending that you spend your hard-earned $50 from Open Table that uh, you got uh, instead of uh, you know taking the women out to dinner. Watch, <laughs> watch a wrestling pay-per-view and give us your thoughts afterwards. So speaking of wrestling, Barry, why don't we now transition? That's another transition for nice. me there. Let's go to our interview with the flying Greek, Mike Pappas. Very, very happy to be joined today by the man once known as the flying Greek. It's Mike Pappas. And Barry, I understand there is a movie about Mike's life coming out. There, there is too. Yeah. And I gotta say, I'm so excited that Mike is joining us today. I grew up, Jeff, as you know, as anybody who listens to our show knows, I grew up going to professional wrestling in Florida on a weekly basis, sometimes two and three times a week. And my father who grew up in Columbus, Ohio had a varied assortment of wrestlers he liked. And one of his favorite wrestlers is the gentleman who's joining us today, the flying Greek, Mike Pappas. 
Mike, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you so much. Like I said, thank you for inviting me to the show. I really do appreciate it. And uh, you guys are uh, doing a good job spreading the word. Thank you so much. So, Barry, why don't you tell us about the name of Mike's uh, film, when it's coming out, uh, how folks can take a look at it so they can get a better look at Mike and his career. Absolutely, too. Yeah, so I've been... Can... Please, Mike. Yeah, Mike, you tell us. Instead of me, Jeff, Mike should be telling <laughs> us about this, right? Do, tell me again. Sure. So the movie, if I'm correct, the movie is called The Flying Greek. And is it premiering on the 25th of June? That's right. That's exactly right. What they can do, they can go the Flying Greek documentary and it tell you exactly what to do to watch it. I don't know very much about it. But uh, Jason Drazer, the person who did the, the documentary, he has all the uh, information. But you can go on Flying Greek or Mike Papas, the wrestler documentary, and they can tell you how to watch it. It's going to be really nice. It's a good family show. So, Mike, one of the things we like to do here on the show is when we talk about someone's career, we always like to start at the beginning. So why don't you tell us, how did you first get uh, interested in pro wrestling? What was your first exposure to the business? How did we start at the very beginning of Mike Pappas's career? Well, what, what I did, honestly, I never liked wrestling very much. I liked boxing. I was never really a fan in wrestling. So I was boxing in Greece. Then I immigrated in Australia, and I was boxing there, the Golden Gloves, as you say. One day, I was riding the bus, and it was another Greek person. He looked at me, and I looked, you know, I looked pretty muscular, and he asked me if I wanted to wrestle. And I said, no, I'm just boxing. I'm doing it very well. I like it. I won all my matches in boxing. And I said, I don't think so. But finally, one day, something told me to try it. So I did, and I liked it. So I was trained by the train of the police in Melbourne, Australia. But I never thought it would be a full-time wrestling. I thought it was like I was working in the jewelry business and uh, every day, and then I was going to the gym like... Uh, two, three times a week. And then they start promoting some wrestling, the Greek people in uh, Australia. So they asked me if I wanted to wrestle, and I said, sure. So after I was trained with the police chief, I mean the police trainer, I did wrestle professionally, and I loved it. My first match, I got over really well. People liked me a lot. And I thank my friend for teaching me to do that. And I was really very, very happy and very active about it, but not every day. Because like I said, it was not, I didn't know it was full-time wrestling. So I wrestled maybe every two, three months and, you know, and then train and wrestle again. And that's how I started. So if you could give us an idea, Mike, what, what sort of time frame are we talking about, like as far as what year was this? That was probably 1961. So was this before the Jim Barnett era in Australia? Yes, 
Okay. Way, way before. Jimmy Barnett came there, I think, 64 or 65, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe 63. Yeah. At that time, I was, it was most like the Greek wrestlers. It was a Greek wrestler named Yakovidis, and he was promoting the wrestling. And that's when I wrestled with him, for them. Jimmy Barnett came later. And, and Australia had, and maybe still does, but actually had a very large Greek population back at that time. Obviously, we look at someone like Sparos Arion, who uh, was a big yes. star in this country, but also, you know, Greece from Australia. How did you wind up in the United States, Mike? Well, the United States were just, the, the, the whole story is I came here, my sister came from Greece, and he met somebody here. And he was, she was getting married. I live in Australia at the time. So my sister sent me an invitation she, to start from the beginning. Even when I, I wanted to come to the United States, everybody say, get it out of your system. You're too small. There's no way you can wrestle in the United States. You gotta be 220 or 230 to go there. There's no way, just don't, don't even think about it. So that's what I had the idea, which in, 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 in America was only heavyweight. So I wasn't really planning to come here to wrestle. But anyway, my sister was getting married, and she invited me to come here. So I came here in the United States, in New York, in New Jersey. And I asked my cousin, I said, look, I used to wrestle professional. Do you know how to get in touch with the wrestling office? He said, yeah. So he got in touch with the wrestling office in Washington. I don't remember who he talked to. I mean, I talked to. And I said, I used to wrestle in Australia, and I would like to wrestle here. So what happened, that weekend, the next weekend, they had a match in Madison Square Garden. So Scotland invited me to go down the Holland Hotel to give me a couple of tickets to go to the wrestling. So I went there. So when I went there, I talked to some people there, and they said, yeah, you're too small. There's no way you can wrestle here. And somebody told me, but you can go to Mexico. There are people your size there. So that's what I did. I called Lutheran. He sent me, sent me some pictures. And I did. I went there, and that was my first full-time wrestling in Mexico. Now, from Mexico, when I was down there, I was like the wrestler of the year. I, I stayed there for eight months. Somebody told me about Nick Gulas in Tennessee. And they told me, Nick Gulas, he can give you a working visa so you can come to the United States and wrestle. I said, well, that's fantastic. So I called Nick Gulas. And I said, uh, I am in Mexico, and he's Greek. So we talk a little bit Greek and a little bit English. And I came to Nashville, Tennessee, and he gave me the name Mike Pappas. Because when he asked me, he said, what's your name? I said, Emmanuel Savinas. He said, it's very hard, especially here in Nashville, Tennessee, to pronounce your name. So... When I flew to Nashville, I went to check in the hotel, 
Sam Davis Hotel. It was a, the wrestling office at the time. And that was Mike Pappas. So that's the name they gave me. So I started in Nashville, Tennessee in 1968. So, uh, just curious, how did you uh, enjoy, uh, as a fellow Greek, you know, Nick Goulas, uh, as a promoter, did he treat you well? Did he pay you well, that no. kind of thing? No, no. Nick Goulas treated me very, very bad. Very, very bad. I hate to tell you, you're not the only person I've heard that about. <laughs> so, but please continue. Well, you know, well, I don't want to say this publicly, but people have to know about the wrestlers a lot of them, they don't have a season. You know what I mean? The only thing you hear about the successful this and that, but it's, a, it's about time to hear about somebody who had a, a very hard time too. When I was wrestling for Nick Gulas, it was time where I didn't have anything to eat for two or three days. It was that bad. And then when I tried to go to another place to work, he called the immigration. And they gave me 15 days to leave the country. He tried to deport me. So that's really bad. And I know a lot of people don't know about that. But it's about time to know a sad story, too. Not just a glory, glory harm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. well, and I think also, I mean, the truth is the truth. And, uh, you know, Nick... Exactly right. Exactly. And look, if this occurred and you were treated bad, and I think in Jeff's head, maybe we were thinking, okay, you're you're from Greece, Nick is Greek, that maybe there would be some kind of bond, but wrestling promoters, as you know, uh, having experienced it, not always the most ethical of people what are out there. But what I really want to talk to you about also, before we start talking about the movie and how that all came to play, and I mentioned this at the top of the interview, my dad loved professional wrestling, and, and I, uh, my love of professional wrestling comes from my father 100%. And we went to the matches, and we saw you in the 70s. I want to say 74, 75, 76. You were in the state at various times during that, and uh, there, was, there was a battle royal that took place in 75, and you were part of it. And... Andre the Giant and Chris Taylor were also in this battle royal. And I remember my dad saying, you just watch. Mike Pappas is going to win tonight. He's going to win the battle royal. Mike, you didn't win the battle royal. My dad was wrong. But it, what was it like working in Florida? You had some great talent in the state of Florida. You had a legendary promoter in Eddie Graham. What was it like being in Florida in the mid-1970s mid for you? That was fantastic. That was really good. They really treated me very well. I had a very good time in Florida. And uh, Bill Watts was the promoter. And that's another thing. Like, uh, still, they were very cautious about the KFA, if you know what I'm saying. They didn't want, even though I was wrestling very well, they never wanted me to get over, you know, like beat everybody. Like, uh, like uh, Mysterio doing right now. You know, I was doing exactly the same thing Mysterio does. I watched it last Sunday, and I went there, and I got, uh, uh, they honored me in WWE. They honored me very well. But anyway, yes, I love Florida. It was very good. They treat me very well. And uh, 
Eddie Graham was very particular about you have to know how to wrestle. And then when people would say, well, this is not real, and they come and wrestle with you, you have to know how to fight with them. They was very particular about that. They, was, they, they, were, they were protecting it too much, if you know what I mean. So let me ask you, uh, a lot of people that we've talked to, and you know, we've done over 245 episodes of our show, Mike, and, and we've talked to many of the, uh, the greats from the wrestling business. Part of the appeal of the state of Florida was that you got a chance to work under, as you said, a uh, one of the all-time great promoters in Eddie Graham, but you had the appeal of you know the the nice weather. Uh, for some, it was the you know the women that were uh, that came to the matches. So, were you more a fan of working under a great promoter? Were you more a fan of the weather? Were you because, quite frankly, let's be honest, a lot of people have said that Eddie wasn't the all-time greatest payoff man. So what was the appeal for you of working in the state of Florida? Well, for me, working in Florida, I enjoyed it very much. And I even had some matches with Tony Atlas. I don't know if you know him. And who has standing ovation. That's how good. So I enjoy, I enjoy working very well. The weather and all that, it didn't really bother us as, as much as making a good living. That was the most important thing. Of course, the weather was good, but the most important thing for somebody is like any other business. You're there to enjoy it and try to make money. And in Florida, I did really well. So, and I got to say, Mike, what a, there's there's a bunch of photos of you in your time in Florida. You had one of the best tans going I've ever seen. So you, you had to have spent some time on the beach, right? Being in the state of Florida. <laughs> What was the beach of choice for you when you were living in Florida? Well, I wanted to go to uh, the Greek town there. Tarpon Springs. That's it. I love it. And then I used to go to the Clearwater. It's the most beautiful beach in, in the world. I grew up in Rodos, where, near the sea. That's the best water in the world. If you ever go to Greece and you go to swim in the sea, you think you're going to come out blue. That's how blue it is. Wow. So clear water was very nice. I enjoyed it very much. I used to go there all the time. And in, in Florida, it was short trips. That's what we like. Now, when I wrestled in Oklahoma, it was long trips. You spend a lot of time on the road. And that's the most important about wrestlers. They wanted to have that short trips and have a good time, too, at the same time. In Oklahoma, you couldn't do that. It was too much trouble. So since you mentioned Oklahoma, let me ask you, uh, I happened to uh, be looking you up uh, on uh, on my phone and, and on Google and such like that. And you spent a lot of time in the mid part of the 70s in the Oklahoma uh, territory working for Leroy McGurk. And so the Bill Watts uh, that you mentioned was was working as the booker in Florida. Was that before you went to Oklahoma or what, did you make the friendship or the acquaintance of Bill and then that led you getting into Florida? What what came first? No, I made the connection in Florida. And then actually in Oklahoma, it was not little my get. Uh, Bill Watts bought the territory. He was the boss gotcha. and the booker. So, yeah, no, I was going to say, obviously, if he was using you, you had uh, a good working relationship with Bill. Yes, we had a very good relationship. It was really, he was very nice to me. 
And, but like I said, it was long trips. Like to give you an idea, my wife lives in Paducah and I didn't see my wife for a week. I had to go there and then go on the weekend back. And then the rest of that. It was very hard life. It was a lot of traveling. Gotcha. So you also spent a lot of time up in New York working for Vince McMahon, the original Vince McMahon, when it was the WWWF. What was it like, too, being in, you know, you're, you're working, let's say, the state of Florida where, you know, the seating might be for 4,000 people. You might be for Nick Goulas in Nashville, maybe also three, 4,000 people. And then you're in Madison Square Garden and some of these other bigger venues, and it's 20,000 people. Was that a big adjustment for you at all? Well, honestly, for me, even if I go to, you know, like if it was one person, I would wrestle the same way, like 22,000 in Madison Square Garden. And everybody's dream, like even I live in Greece, Madison Square Garden was the thing. If you make it in Madison Square Garden, you made it anywhere. It was really a, a dream come true. Like when I wrestled in, the, in Madison Square Garden, I was very, very excited. And I would never thought I'd be there because, like I said, they only wanted big guys. But I made it there, and I was very thrilled. And Vince McMahon Sr. was very nice to me. He was very good, very good promoter. I, I love him very much. So there's a famous photo, of course, uh, that was in the magazines of uh, of you and Andre, where Andre, I think, was, was picking you up uh, and... You know, when we have people on here that uh, that knew Andre and worked with Andre, we always like to ask him about an Andre the Giant story. Uh, could you tell us about your relationship with Andre the Giant? Yeah, I had a very, very good relationship with Andre. When he came to New York, when I was driving, he was always going with me. So he didn't speak very good English. I didn't either. And then I spoke a little bit French. So we got along very well. He was drinking a lot of beer. I couldn't drink uh, as much as he could, but he always wanted you to drink with him, but I couldn't do it. I'll just give you a little story. We were in Pennsylvania, and then he wanted to to drink beer after the matches. And he he didn't want to go outside because he didn't want people to bother him. And he said, Mike, would you please buy some beer for me? I said, sure. I said, how much you want? He said, how far are we from from New York. I said about 120 miles. Okay, just buy three cases. <laughs> <laughs> that might make it to New York, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, tell him again. No, I said that that might get him to New York, right? <laughs> three cases. Yes, just get to New York. And then he was doing the whole of it. You know what I mean? Like, and he never go outside of the bathroom or nothing. And he never wanted to sit in the back. He always wants to sit in front because he didn't want to insult me. He didn't want to think like he, I'm his chauffeur. He was a very, very good person. Did you get Andre to try Uzo? Yes, I did. And, and how, did he, how, how did he handle the Uzo? Well, he liked to drink beer. Uzo, he drank a little bit. You know, he came here in Springfield one time and he even came to my place. Uh, I used to live in uh, Kansas City, I mean, Kansas City. And my wife cooked dinner for him, and I gave him some uzo. 
and then we took some pictures. <laughs> he was pretty <laughs> fun. Yeah, he was very, very nice man. So one of the things I've always wondered, too, is we look at the great talents of the, of the 70s. And I, I, I'll always believe the 70s, to, at least to me, you had some of the greatest professional wrestlers in the history of the business. And a couple of those guys, Danny Hodge and Hiro Matsuda, were considered the pillars of the junior heavyweight division. They traded the world's junior heavyweight uh, title multiple times with each other. You, though, sir, seem like you would have fit in perfectly. Smaller stature, but a great worker. And this was a title that a lot of times was also controlled by the Bill Watts or Leroy McGurk territory in, in, uh, you know, in, in that area. Was there ever any consideration with putting you with the strap, the world's junior heavyweight title? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, when I work in Tennessee... Jerry Jarrett made me the champion. I was the light heavyweight champion of the world, but they never used it very much for some reason. I don't know if it was Nicola's idea. I don't know. But Jerry Jarrett was, was on, on my best fans. Every time I wrestled, he would say, no, Mike, you make me nervous. How you do all these things? And his idea, he made me a champion, and he wanted me to travel all over United States and the world go to Mexico, but it never materialized. So as a matter of fact, I am the light champion of the world, but they never used that. And yes, they wanted to use me for the junior heavyweight championship. Yes, but it never happened. So, yes, you know, they, they considered, they considered, yes. So Barry was talking about uh, the seventies and all the great wrestlers that, uh, that were working in the territorial system of the seventies. And I, you know, we mentioned, uh, Oklahoma and I, I was looking at a, uh, place, uh, I believe it's on charting the territories. Some of the talent that was in the Oklahoma territory at the time, you know, we mentioned Bill Watts, Danny Hodge, uh, pork chop cash, Ted DiBiase, you Jack Curtis, Jr. Yeah. And then yeah. on, on the other side, you had killer, one of Barry's all-time favorites, Killer Carl Cox. Yep. You had the Hollywood Blondes of Buddy Roberts, Jerry Brown. You had a Tim Brooks, Waldo Von Erich. What a loaded territory. So outside of the driving, how great was it to work in that territory with all that talent? Well, I liked it very much. Like I said, I, I knew Danny Hodge very well. And then I knew Matsuda very well, too. As a matter of fact, I worked with him. I work out with them a few times, and then I work as partners, too. Yes, I loved it. And Bill Watts, the reason he took me to Oklahoma, they always put me to the first match because I was bringing the people up. You know what I mean? I was getting the people excited. And then Buck Robley, I don't know if you remember him, sure. too. When he went to, to Kansas City, I was working in Knoxville, and he called me to go to Kansas City because he knew I would bring the people up. So he used me there and bring the territory up. So, yes, it was really, yeah, Bill Watts and I would get along very well. But because of my size, he never pushed me, like, to become a champion or thing. But he would always put me on the first or second match because I was making the people happy. And the show was going on very well. 
Yeah. So, so I want one of the things we do on our podcast. We don't just talk about professional wrestling. We we talk about everything, whether it's music, TV, food, pop culture. But you brought up Tarpon Springs, and Tarpon Springs, Florida, is uh, Jeff. To give you some context of where Tarpon Springs, it's about thirty minutes from Lutz. It's on the coast. It is a massive Greek community there. They still have the sponge diving. The mayor of the city is Greek. Every real estate agent is Greek. This is a community where the Greek roots go back, you know, 50, 100, 200 years. Everybody's Greek in Tarpon Springs. I was there last December with my son, and we went and had a couple of meals. And I got to say, maybe some of the best food I ever had. So one of the questions we do like to ask our guests, we've got a jet airplane. It's fueled up, even with the price of gas being, you know, $50 a gallon or whatever it is. Where is the one restaurant in the entire world you would want to go to? I don't know, to be honest with you. I am not a very good uh, at this, you know. Usually, when I was growing up, we wasn't going to the restaurant a lot. We always wanted to eat home, you know what I mean? But I don't really have any favor to be honest with you you said your wife was a pretty darn good cook it sounds like yeah she cooked the greek meals you know the moussaka and pastitio and all that avolemono you know the chicken soup all oh yeah stuff. yeah we don't go really very much out when we go out like today i went to a greek restaurant here and i had gyro homemade gyro not the one you buy on the you know what i mean so we usually go mostly Greek restaurants. So the other question that we like to ask when we have a, a former wrestler uh, on our show is, you know, we, we, we talked some about uh, your experiences with Andre and Bill Watts and Danny Hodge and people. So you work with a large cross section of wrestlers during the 1970s. So Mike, let me ask you, you are out at a local drinking establishment having uh, some ouzo, uh, maybe standing with some friends that are having a beer, and you've got about 10 guys that are coming towards you, and they've got a real problem with Mike Pappas, and they want to have a good throw down with you, throw some punches. Who is the one wrestler that you worked with during your career, either as a partner, uh, across the ring from you, or just in the locker room, and you're like, that's the guy that I want standing next to me? Bob Backer. Really? Yes. He was very strong. I worked out with him in, in Florida. I mean, Daddy Hodge was very strong, too. But I never experienced with him to wrestle. But I worked out with Bob Backlund, even though I was in really good shape and I wrestled amateur. Bob Backlund used me like a baby. Very strong. Yeah, Bob Backlund was, for me, one of the strongest person I met. Fair Except, enough. you know, of course, Matsuda and Danny Hodge, too. But I never experienced their power like I did with Bob Buckler. Especially I mean, at that age. Yeah, because yeah. we saw, I was, you know, I was there in Florida and Backlund first came in in 1974. I think it was only the third territory he had ever worked. And he was this big 
just muscular, but you know, but you could see the strength, just an incredibly, incredibly strong guy. What did you think? And this will go back to Florida. And then we want to talk about the film a little bit more. What did you think about the hierarchy of working in Florida when you were there? Dusty was on top. How did you feel with Dusty being on top? But then Dusty, not so much of a of a wrestler, more of a worker. You had wrestlers underneath, guys like Backlund and guys like Steve Kern and Mike Graham. How did you feel about that? Well, you know, Steve, uh, I mean, the American Dream. They, he was a very good showman, and that's the thing. And that's you know, Backlund was very strong, but he was never a showman if you know what I mean. So yes. in the business, if you're in this business, like they say, to be an actor, you have to be a good athlete. And to be a good athlete, you gotta be an actor. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. You have to know how to to please the people. Bob Backland didn't know that. You know what I mean? He was very strong, very good wrestler, but he didn't have the charisma let's say, like uh, Hulk Hogan here. Right, so. which is extremely fair, which is is fair. Let's talk about the film for a little bit too, Mike. So the film is making its debut the 25th of June, but at the same time, people will be able to view this film. How did you get approached to have a documentary on your life to be made? Well, that was kind of, uh, you there at the right time at the right place. We had a show here, they called the Mystery Hour. So they invited me to go there and talk about wrestling or about my career here as a jeweler because I've been here four years and I have a jewelry store, very successful and very good reputation. You can go to manolisjewelers.com too if you want to and you look at that. So anyway, I was invited to a show and Jason Bezos is supposed to be there because he was the cameraman. And the next day he came to my store and asked me if I was interested to do a documentary. And I said, sure. I, but I asked him, I said, well, how did you choose me? He was a very good wrestling fan. He said, well, everybody's talking about Hulk Hawker and Under the Giant. I would like to do something, somebody like you. And I, I agreed. I said, okay, we'll do it. And we did it. And we had the premiere here in a theater. The weather was very bad, like somebody did it on purpose. But we had a very good crowd, and the film is very nice. We got a, an award from some film festival, something like that. And then it's going to be shown worldwide next Saturday. And it's a good family story. About the rest, it's a beautiful story. It's something different than Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair. Yeah, Ric Flair was a good friend of mine too. I never met Hulk Hogan. But I'm really very impressed. They're so big and they move in colors. You know, I was sitting there thinking, Mike, when you talked about how the uh, on the premiere date the weather uh, ended up being so bad. I couldn't help but think that if he was still alive, you could have blamed Nick Goulas and said that Nick was responsible for the for the bad weather because you were finally getting that exposure <laughs> that you wanted. Okay. So let me just ask you. Yeah, 
<laughs> regarding the movie, is is it primarily an footage of your career? Uh, what, what what sort of stuff are, are they talking about on the film? Well, mostly we're talking how I started in the business, like we just discussed, and they show. Unfortunately, they cannot find a tape from me wrestling, and I don't know why, because I wrestled so many times on TV in New York, in Philadelphia, in in, in Kansas City, uh, in Australia, everywhere. But they cannot find a tape from me wrestling. I don't understand that. So anyway, we're talking about that, and then. They show some pictures about me growing up in, in, in Greece and pictures in Australia. It's a beautiful story. How, I'm just curious, how long were you actually in Australia? Uh, the first time I lived there for six years. Okay. Then I went back home to Greece, and then the military government came in, and then I went back to Australia again, and then I came to the state. And then I went back as a wrestler. After Florida, Frankie Kane was the booker in in uh, Australia and took me there and wrestled there because of the Greek population. It's very a lot of Greek uh, people there in Melbourne. Yeah. So, well, listen, Mike. Uh, on behalf of uh, Barry and Lou and myself, we want to say thank you so much for uh, for giving us some of your time. We'll post a link. Uh, in our Facebook group to uh, to your movie and encourage uh, those that have the ability to certainly check it out because it's a very interesting story uh, about a man living the immigrant experience and, and not just one country but two and uh, and then uh, you know your your very interesting wrestling career and uh, and Barry good time talking to Mike today I think you'll agree I, you know what again well, this is so yeah this is kind of a uh, a dream in a sense because uh, again you know. It, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my dad and my dad's love of professional wrestling. So the fact that my dad, who has been passed away for, uh, you know, for over 20, 25 years, the fact that I can sit back and, and realize, wow, I just had a conversation with Mike Pappas today is really exciting. Mike, obligatory question that I have to ask, do you ever make it down to the state of Florida at all? Not really, because when I opened my jewelry store, I really work to make it happen and I'm still working. I'm 81 year old. Thank God I'm still in good shape. And I yeah, I like to go to Florida. Yeah, I love Florida, yes. Yeah, the reason I asked too is we do a fan fest down there. It's called CWF Legends Fan Fest. And we always try to feature guys that have worked in the state of Florida. I think you would be a good love to come there. What is the next time is it November. I don't know because this is the time in my business, uh, but maybe for like two or three days, maybe we can work something out. Something yeah, out. I would love that, Mike. Kevin Sullivan is a good friend of mine. And he Kevin Sullivan was the at the last one. He was at our last I show. Know. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. So, well, once again, Mike, we want to say thank you so much for appearing with us, and uh, we hope you have a great day and stay in good health. Well, thank you so much, and keep in touch. Barry, always a good time to talk to a wrestling uh, a legend, especially one that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, because, you know, 
let's face it, there's not so many of them out there anymore. And it's always good. And I had to laugh. You had a Greek guy that had a problem with Nick Goulas. <laughs> that, that was pretty awesome, too. And I think we both were expecting that there would be this common bond. They're Greek brothers, right? <laughs> and instead, Nick Goulas, out of all the stories you've heard about him, turns around and screws a, a guy, another guy. And this guy's a Greek guy, right? So yeah, that was pretty it, funny. It was kind of amazing, too. If you do notice, too, we did we did record that interview prior to the 25th, which was this past Saturday. But we will be posting a link where you'll, where you'll be able to purchase this uh, this documentary on the life of Mike Pappas. I want to say it's very affordable, five or six bucks. I, I, I forget exactly what the dollar amount was, but you can purchase an online viewing again. Here's a guy that got out of wrestling to support his family and became a jeweler and moved to Missouri and didn't get caught up in the trappings of you know, Ric Flair going to wrestle his last match for the eighth time in a couple of weeks. And he's 72 or 73. Mike Pappas walked away, did the right thing, supported his family. I, I'm excited to see this film because I haven't seen it yet either, Jeff. So, Barry, now let's turn to a little food talk. I know you always oh. like that, Barry. So, Barry, a couple things uh, that happened recently. Uh, thought I'd share the first one with you. You know, we, we talked uh, many episodes uh, ago about chain re- – I think there was the topic was something like chain restaurants uh, that you need to try. And uh, one of them that they mentioned was uh, La Madeleine, which is a, uh, a French – restaurant it's primarily like breakfast and lunch kind of thing but they have a bakery alongside of it uh, and i've said before on the show the uh, croissants are out of this world great the cookies they make there are great we've actually uh my mom big fan of coconut cake and we've gone and purchased the coconut cakes that they make there and my mom gives them a huge thumbs up so the other night uh, we were uh, out in the uh, Marietta area, and we're coming home, and so we're getting ready to drive by La Madeleine, and we're like, oh, let's let's swing in there. We'll get some croissants for uh, for breakfast, and and we'll get some cookies, okay? Because certainly you've seen my uh, my golden physique. I you know I, I certainly need more cookies, Barry. So we go in there. Now I'm going to tell you that I believe uh, at this point it was somewhere around 6:45. And I think they closed like 8 or 8.30. So this was not like they're closing in 10 minutes. Okay, I want to emphasize right. okay. that. So we go in there. There is literally not a single person in the restaurant, okay, like customer-wise. Now, as we drove away later, we we saw there were three people sitting at a table outside, like, you know, one of the tables in the, I guess you'd say the patio area or directly outside the restaurant. Those are the only customers that the restaurant had and they were not inside the restaurant. Okay. So we, uh, we walk in there and the little front area where they have the, uh, the window that have the baked goods and stuff like that is right by the, uh, the register. So we're standing there and there are three uh, young guys that are behind the counter, but they're like a ways down, okay? And But there's nobody working the front register. So we're kind of, you know, standing there. We're like, oh, okay, let's get this. There's some croissant. We'll get that. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and no one's coming over. So finally what happens is we kind of start moseying our way down the way to the counter, and a couple of the guys are putting, like, uh, you know, dishware plates and cups out there, and there's another guy that's uh, – a uh, he's finishing some stuff up, like he's pouring some stuff from a container uh, into a, you know, uh, a serving dish or something like that. And so Kim goes up and says, uh, excuse me, uh, can we get any help uh, 
at the uh, the front counter, we we want to get some stuff that's in the uh, the display window. The guy looks at my wife and says, "Not yet. I'm busy doing this." Oh, so like we kind of turn and look at one another, and I kind of motion for Kim, and I said, "Guess what? We're not buying a damn thing here." And it was hugely disappointing because I love their food, but I got to tell you, Barry, I was super fucking pissed off at that point to the point where we, I said, they've lost a customer leaving. One of the guys that was putting the dishwares away came walking over uh, by the front counter where we were not, not to help us. He was putting something that else away. And I said, Hey, uh, do yourself a favor. Tell your buddy there that he just cost his place a customer. So we got in our car and we drove away. And so we tried to call them to ask for a manager to complain, you know, Hey, you guys lost a customer and we're huge fans of your restaurant. And so, uh, we tried, we called twice, uh, went right to voicemail. Uh, no one picked it. You know, we uh, press a zero to uh, reach a manager or, or, a, you know, cashier, nobody answered. Okay. And again, let me point out, this was not a time where they had 50 people in the restaurant. It was swamped and they were too busy to pick up the phone. There was nobody in there, Barry. Okay. And so I started getting more and more pissed off about this. So Kim's like, I'm going to write a complaint. And so she goes to do like, I don't know, Google review or some trip advisor or whatever. And so as she's scrolling through, she goes, hey, you know, there's a lot of people here that are, uh, you know, have, have left comments about how unhappy they were with the service there. So Barry Rose using and calling upon your vast experience as a manager and server. server. Yes. What would you have done if you were the manager of La Madeleine and an angry Jeff Bowdrin called and told you that's the response he got from one of your employees? So I would be, uh, I would be first I, as a manager, I would be very upset about that. And as a patron being treated that way would also have me very upset. And what's happening, Jeff? And I, I look, I'm not Nostradamus, so it's going to be hard for me to predict this, but Six, eight months ago, there was, within the last year, there was this big kind of typhoon swirling around, let's be really, really good to our staff. If you're going to be a dick, don't come into my restaurant and treat my staff like shit. And it's almost like restaurants were giving this this leeway to their staff, and I'll give you a good example in a second, there's this leeway to their staff to be less than professional based off of the environment that we were in. It was almost like, you know, the service may suck. They may not be friendly, but look, we're, we're fortunate to even have our doors open because we can't get staff. And as a consumer, their expectation was that you're going to accept that. And I don't, I never agreed with that. I always felt, you know, look, I, I get that it's tough. I'm not in the trenches any longer, even though I was for 35, 40 years, but at the same time, I think a customer that goes to spend their hard-earned dollars, and I'm going to get to this point in a second, they have every right and every expectation that they're going to be treated well being a customer of a, of a restaurant. I don't want to hear any bullshit. I, it's one thing. Look, Lutz was a great example, and people were talking. You had that server that was taking care of everybody outside, and let's be honest. The service wasn't good. This kid was busting his ass, though. And, and that's what you that's what you look for. Look, we know that, you know, if you're putting a brand new server, which is really a poor management decision, but maybe they had no other route to go. 
but you're putting a brand new server with limited experience. And what do you do? Give him the entire outdoor patio of like 40 people. Like that, that just seems like a horrible idea. So I went to Panera and I think I actually talked about this. And the lovely Zoe and I went to Panera a couple of months back. And the girl who was taking care of us could have given a shit that we were standing in front of her. Like it was just the most indifferent unfriendly service. She wasn't rude. Uh, maybe by her indifference she was, but she could have cared less that we were standing in front of her. And then, of course, the last question as you swipe your credit card is, do you want to leave a tip? And she even said, she goes, if you want to leave a tip, you put it right there. Why am I fucking tipping you? For what? For being a douche? For not being friendly? For not giving a shit? For not even answering my questions when I've asked you? And, and you've seen this at various restaurants over the last few months because, again, the expectation was there that we're lucky to even have our doors open and have anybody working because there's a labor shortage. Well, all this is about to dramatically change. Jeff, you've gone shopping. You're looking for a house currently. You drive a car. You've been to the grocery store. Nothing costs what it cost a year ago. And again, that's coming from somebody that, you know, I go shopping and I, I always talk about non bread. I used to buy this Indian non bread. When I started buying this, Jeff, which was February of last year, it was $2.69. It's now $4.69. Everything I buy from the yogurt to the meats to fruit and shit, you don't eat like vegetables. It's all gone up in price. Everybody knows about gas. Everybody knows about the housing market. We are in an inflationary environment, which leads to a possible recession. That's the next step. Now, again, I'm not some sort of economist that I could tell you this is going to happen, but I can tell you the prediction because I'm on phone calls four days a week charting what's taking place. The prediction is we will be in a recession. What does that mean? That means that all the people you have pissed off, Jeff Bowdrin, first and foremost right now on, the, on this recording, all the people that you have pissed off by your indifference when it comes to service will now very carefully have to pick and choose where they're going to spend their money because, again, we're in a recession. So continue to treat your customers like shit. Continue to treat people uh, like they're just a dollar sign walking in because in six months, your business is going to dramatically suffer. Not even a little bit. It's going to dramatically suffer and you're going to see a big change. With that, I, I've been to a couple of restaurants recently where the service was through the roof. It was fantastic. And there was a real emphasis on you know, is your food great or your drinks great? Is there anything I can do to make this experience more enjoyable for you? That's the restaurant I'm going to continue to patronize. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've been out recently a, a couple of times where um, we had a server that was in the middle of training another, uh, another server. And immediately when I do that, I enjoy having so much fun with the new server because what i'll do is i'll go oh no no if you're training is this your first day no well then jump right in the pool put down you know my order and you know and i do it and i have fun with them i'm not rude at all and i always take care of them but you know i i, I figure that's the best way to learn right you know so so barry on that note good advice from you uh to the food related industry let me ask you while i'm about to tell you the story that i just read the other day i want you to think about what was as a server that was for you spiker 
tell me what your worst related experience was when you were a server, okay? Like dealing with a customer, if you can remember it. The reason I bring this up is because I saw an article yesterday, uh, the uh, and I'll post it in the group. Uh, it was called Server Not Servant, okay? The story, uh, and it was, uh, I don't believe they said what city it was in, uh, what restaurant it was in, anything like that. But a woman, I think she went on TikTok or something like that, and was telling the story about how she had a party of, I want to say like maybe eight to 10 people. It, it was a good sized party. Okay. And uh, it was predominantly adults, but there were, it was like a family that had two of their daughters there. And one of the daughters might've been like 21, 22 years old. And the other one, the suspicion was that she was not, you know, she was over 18, but she wasn't uh, of the drink. And apparently where this took place, the drinking age was 21. Okay. So the, you know, she was going around, the server was going around taking the orders and the one girl that she suspected might've been under 21 said, oh, I'd like to have such and such a drink. Uh, and she says, well, I need to see some ID. She says, oh, well, uh, I don't have it with me. I left it at home. And she presents some form of identification that uh, doesn't have her birth date on it. The, the lady's like, well, I, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, I could get in trouble uh, if I serve you alcohol. And, uh, you know, you're not of age. So if you don't have ID, I can't give you the alcoholic drink. Well, apparently the family, apparently uh, specifically the mom got a little irate about this treatment. Uh, a little, uh, here's a word we haven't used in a while, Barry, a little petulant. Uh, oh, and so she then said, well, fine. You know what? Uh, and I'm just going to use an example. Uh, give me a vodka orange juice. And so the one brought, the server brought her out of vodka orange juice. The server then observed the woman push the glass across the table to the daughter that was suspected of being underage. At this point, she came back uh, and she told her manager about it, which let's, let's give her credit. Smart. That's exactly Smart. what she should do. Yes. So when the woman tried to order another drink and the suspicion was she was going to put it across to the, uh, you know, the underage daughter, the manager came over and said, ma'am, we can't have you buying drinks and then giving them to this lady that we suspect is underage. And the woman became even further irate they uh, apparently had run up a, you know, a party of eight to 10 people run up a pretty large tab, uh, you know, food wise, drink wise. They left the server with a grand total of zero dollars as a tip. And so what this woman was saying was, you know, I'm a server. I'm not your servant where sure. you can just order me to do anything. So, Barry, first of all, you're the manager. Tell us what you would have done or if anything different than what this manager apparently did. And if you can remember, what was the worst experience you ever had dealing with a customer as a server? So it, it sounds like the server. What, what do you know? What state this was? I really don't know. I don't. Yeah, you know, okay. I don't think it was mentioned. That's it, because I'm trying to figure out. You know, I'm trying to figure out what kind of restaurant, and I'm trying to figure out. You know, while is, you're talking, I'll see if I can find the story. Yeah, is this like low budget or high budget? So first off, the server could be arrested. And the restaurant could lose its liquor license, which would probably ultimately lead to the shutting of the doors of the restaurant. And then giving the alcohol to a minor, even if it's a parent, in a public place, privately as well, but it's against the law. So if she continued to make a big stink about this, and it sounds like she was a dick right from the get-go, I probably would have tried to record her giving the beverage to her underage daughter, and I would have called the police. Because it's, again, you know, the responsibility of the restaurant is huge in this case. And there was a change to the law a few years back. 
but someone that knowingly, as an employee of a restaurant, someone that knowingly serves alcohol to a minor can be held on civil charges as well. So it, this is not something, you know, where, oh, you can say, oh, yeah, I fucked up. I'm going to get fired. You know, if you're if you're serving a minor and the minor gets drunk and crashes that car, say hello to jail time. You know, it, it's going to come your way. So it sounds like a lot of this was handled correctly. I understand she stiffed the server, but at this point, what did the server think was going to happen if this woman's flipping out and she's angry? Justified. Look, it does happen. My ex years ago was working as a server at a high-end steakhouse in Orlando, Charlie Steakhouse, which, you know, it's been around Central Florida for years. And she had a party one night and it was, uh, I think it was eight eight guys and they were all golfers and the bill was somewhere around $700. This would have been 1996, 700 bucks. And they left her $10 as a tip. And she came home and she was just devastated. You know, I spent two hours, I worked. Why would this happen? Turns out it was an error. They actually came back the next day and left her like a hundred bucks, which was great. But at the same time, I think you told that story before. I probably have many episodes ago, but I remember that story. Yeah. But she was demoralized when she came home that night based off of that. So again, bottom line, it sounds like they did the right thing here. Liquor and minors is not something to fuck with because uh, you will, as a business, you will lose your license. Well, uh, I can I, I can tell you that when my wife uh, worked at the arena in uh, in Broward County uh, for the uh, Florida Panthers games and concerts and stuff like that, uh, that they would periodically run have people come in uh, and check and you know they they'd send someone up. Uh, let me have a beer. And my wife would say, uh, I need to see your, uh, your ID. Oh, I don't sure. have one. And she would refuse. And yeah, she, she would should. say, she would say, man, if I had done that, I would, first of all, I'd lose my job. And I'd seen, I've seen people in court before that have been charged with that. And it may seem like a relatively innocuous, uh, charge of serving alcohol to a minor. But again, as Barry <laughs> said, as Barry said, first of all, you expose yourself to civil penalties, but also criminal penalties. And are, you know, are you going to get, you know, like a hundred days in jail or something? No. But now all of a sudden you have the proverbial criminal record yep. and you go to apply, say you go to apply for a job as a bartender somewhere. Oh, what kind of, you know, yeah, oh, I got this thing where I sold alcohol to my, Hey, yeah, yeah. good luck getting a job as a bartender or as a server somewhere. Cause that's not going to happen unless you go to work at friggin' checkers or Burger Well, here's King. the other thing about this, Jeff too. It's my assumption is that would be a felony to serve alcohol to a minor. There are certain states where you cannot work in a restaurant if they have a liquor license, if you're a convicted felon. How did I find that out? I never knew that before. Your conviction that you haven't mentioned to us? Is that what you're going to say? That'll be on the next Patreon episode. Okay, thank you. We'll go through that. But when I was working in New Jersey, right over the bridge from Philadelphia, and I was the general manager, managing partner of a large chain, we had- dropper. Yeah, well, should I name the name of the restaurant? I will. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it was Brio Tuscan Grill, which Ooh, is uh, well. still around. And I had no idea about this law. And as it turns out, HR never told me. Like nobody internally ever said a word about it. We've been open for probably two or three years. And we get a phone call one day, and it's that, did you know that you have three convicted felons? One was uh, you know, armed robbery, but these were these were serious charges. You have three convicted felons. You have to terminate them immediately. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? Wait, wait a minute. Can I, can I just, uh, this is going to be a reference that only some sure. people will get. Uh, did they tell you about when they were in prison, the dementors? 
Okay, I didn't get that either. Remember in the office when uh, you know prison? Oh Mike's- yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Okay, there you the go. The Dementors—they were horrible, man. They were. Somebody so, popped for that reference, just not you. Michael Herrick's popping for that exactly. reference. There's a big. Uh, he's a big Office fan, but that was a that was an eye opener for me. And uh, but my point being, there's a lot of states. You know, I, there's a lot of states. And PA is not one of them. That if you are a convicted felon, you can't work at a place that has a liquor license. Jersey is one of those. So that is something that you absolutely have to think about because you may never work in a restaurant again if you decide to serve minors. With that, the worst experiences I ever had, I've talked previously about the guy, the little French guy that tripped me. With oh, the yes, I remember that. Yeah. Tavern on the green and the visine. You, that were, was you, were, you were flirting with his girlfriend, as I recall. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, according I, to him. According to him, I was because I was about 40 years younger than he was. And she was like my age. I mean, he was an old pervert. So I don't, you know, fuck that guy. So I was working at another place and I, I'll tell the humorous story and then I'll tell one that wasn't so humorous. And I got really I had to do the old walk in the cooler to calm down because I was so mad. I've got 50 of these stories. so I'll keep this. But there were two young ladies at a table and I was probably in my mid 20s at this point. I don't know, maybe even a little bit younger. And they were very attractive. And uh, as it turns out, I became their server and they started making conversation with me, which is wonderful. Right. So she <laughs> she goes, she goes, oh, are, are you from this area? And I said, actually, I, I was born and raised in Florida. In this area, you don't find a lot of people like that. A lot of people come here. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, it, she, just like this, she goes, we're from Montreal. That's in Canada. <laughs> I fucking started laughing so hard and I walked away from the table. She went up and complained to management that I did that, which I thought was so funny. I didn't get in trouble or anything, but I just thought that was so funny. But I did have another guy at the same restaurant. He came in and he was with a party of, I think it was five other people. I want to say it was a six top. And as it turns out, it was his birthday. His wife, girlfriend, whatever she was, leans over and said, it's his birthday. Can we get a candle with a cake in it and sing happy birthday? And the guy says, no, no, I don't want that tonight. And then she said, honey, it's your birthday. We should celebrate. He looks at me and says, if you bring a fucking cake with a fucking candle here, you're going to have a huge problem. And I said, sir, whatever your problem is. Don't get me in the middle of it. And he stood up. We went chest to chest for a minute. Nothing happened. He sat back. Going up as a server. Go ahead. I was pissed. You're going to be a fucking dick to me in front of your your group of six people. And this he wasn't a guy whispering this to me either. He was saying this in front of everybody in the restaurant. So, yeah. And I again, I was in my 22 or 23. So I was, you know, young, dumb and full of something. But. I completely stood up. So those would be, but again, I probably have 50 stories where you're treated like shit. Servers, it's a tough business. It's not for everyone. Your patience level will be tested through the roof. However, if you do like to make cash, it's a great way to make some quick cash. I will say that uh, on behalf of the uh, the brothership and the listeners, what we were expecting uh, just for you to embellish a story was, uh, you know, hey, yeah, we bumped uh, chest to chest. Uh, he went to throw a punch at me. I grabbed his wrist, took him down, gave him a front face lock, and uh, he tapped. <laughs> you know, make it a wrestling component to the story. I should have. You're right. Now it is time, Barry, as we begin to sort of go for the go home. 
Let's do a little Florida man or not. Are you ready? Oh, this is like a weekly thing now. I'm well, loving it. you know, let's just say people send me stories. That's all, all I right. Right. So, right. Barry, the headline says, man arrested after asking for protection from drug supplier coming to collect, deputies say. Authorities this past week arrested Pedro Serrano. No, Pedro Serrano, that's the guy from Major League, Joe Bo. That's Joe. right, Joe Bo. <laughs> uh, after he showed up at the sheriff's office to ask for protection after he reportedly failed to pay a drug supplier. Barry, the drug suppliers hate when you do not pay them. Serrano spoke with investigators on Thursday and claimed his life was in danger. During the interview, he allegedly said he had a large quantity of narcotics in his vehicle, which he had parked outside the sheriff's. That, that's not that's not a, not a bright idea. The interview revealed Serrano was seeking safety from law enforcement after not paying the narcotics supplier, according to the sheriff's office. Officials said the interview concluded the investigators attempted to take Serrano into custody for the narcotics. He began fighting them inside the interview room allegedly continued to resist even after several investigators responded, very Florida man or not. So it's a tough one here. You've got a Hispanic and you have drugs. And let's be honest, South Florida, you know, was made in the 80s on that. It really becomes, I'm trying to get in your head to see the the, the rotation of, of how you're doing it. That's really what I'm looking at. Is that what I have now, a rotation? You have a rotation going. I'm going to say this could have been Florida, but I'm going to say it's not. Harrison County, Texas. Wow. Which apparently is located in Southeast Texas. Shout out to our listeners in Southeast Texas. That's Houston, right? I think you got me. Uh, but let's hope that somebody will say, oh, it's uh, obvious. I can't believe uh, you and Barry didn't know this, that it's in, uh, you know, and it's like a upper bumfuck Texas or something like that. Uh, Barry, our next headline, uh, as it's pulling up here, naked woman arrested after setting bushes on fire for quote unquote celebration. Yesterday, we dropped a couple of good stories. So today, it's only fair that a naked woman joins in. I, I like that. I, I like when you uh, are willing to incorporate naked women into stories, Barry. I'm such a sexist pig. Lots of celebrating last night uh, after a, uh, a home team win, but I don't think that's what this woman was celebrating. Police dispatched uh, on reports of a naked woman in the bushes in the median uh, of an interstate. According to uh, uh, the news source, the woman was 40-year-old Melanie Keorg. Uh, while questioning the naked woman, the officers noticed smoke coming from a bush about 15 feet away. The woman explained she had lit the bonfire for a celebration. Damage was estimated at <laughs> $50. The woman was booked for criminal mischief. You know, if she was naked, what she could have said was, I was going to the bathroom. I was yes. urinating, attempting to put out the fire. She did not do that, Barry. Florida woman or not. Well, you're going to like this, Jeff. So as we all know, because certainly I only talk about this every episode, I've been trying to relocate to Florida and in the housing markets, probably the big reason that I'm not currently doing that. But I have been trying. You're not going to gonna take Frankie Seacrest up on his offer of a property uh, right available next to him. That one that was one point one million dollars. No, no, no. It was one point one million two years ago. Two it's now oh. two point three. It's gone up one million dollars in two years. That's absolutely yeah. Fucking no, but I will say that there is a condo from Frankie. Uh, maybe five minutes within five minutes of where Frankie lives. It's a one bedroom, one bath condo, old school, but it's three hundred thousand dollars. It would be nice for a vacation place, but I don't think I could live there full time. But Frankie's neighborhood is like through the roof. But the state of Florida is with that. Where I'm going with this is that I get daily updates 
about certain cities. One of the cities that I'm looking at is Palm Harbor, and the neighboring town next to Palm Harbor is Tarpon Springs, Florida, Jeff. Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. So, yes, I already know this took place at Tarpon Springs, Florida. Actually, the city that I had in the article was Largo, but I'll give you credit for the correct answer. Okay. The next uh, story, Barry, oh, uh, it's a restaurant-related story. Fast food employee arrested after meth found in a customer's order. I hate when that happens, Barry. Fast food restaurant employee was arrested after a bag of drugs was discovered in a customer's order, according to authorities. An employee at a restaurant was arrested for distribution of a controlled substance within 2,000 feet of a school. That makes it a felony, by the way, uh, as well as possession of a controlled substance. Police say they were alerted to the incident and responded to the undisclosed restaurant where they spoke with staff members. An individual made an order at a restaurant. When they received the order, they found a small baggie of drugs inside their uh, food bag. The officer said they learned that the bag had crystalline substance, uh, a, I'm sorry, a crystalline substance inside that later tested positive for methamphetamine. Barry, he put it inside a customer's food bag. Florida man or not. Ah, so Jeff, once again, I have to recuse myself. Son of a bitch. So I listen to a show every morning. Uh, it's a morning radio show. It's based yeah, out of Yeah, you're Tampa. not watching wrestling pay-per-views, but you're listening no. to local drive time. And uh, they were they talked about this story. They, they I forget what state it was in, but it was in Florida. But they said the irony was in his booking shot, he's wearing a T-shirt that says freedom. <laughs> well, <No. laughs> not something he's currently dealing with. Uh, no. This took place Tulsa, Oklahoma, Barry. And I hear I haven't seen him, but I hear he looks like a meth head. Like the photo, he's, he's a good-looking guy. Oh so, yeah. So Barry, I will give credit. This great story uh, occurred on the the Obtuse Angles podcast. They were talking about this, and I just started cracking up, looking and thinking about what the visual of the story may have been like. So let's give a credit to those guys uh, for this story. Barry, the headline reads, a guy didn't want to see his future in-laws, so he sent his twin brother. So most of us don't have the option of avoiding the in-laws, so or more people would probably do it. A 28-year-old woman asked for advice on Reddit after her fiance pulled a fast one to get out of seeing her family. She hadn't seen anyone in a while because of the pandemic, so they had planned a big family reunion type of thing. Her fiance didn't want to go but he eventually agreed to and said he would drive separately. Ooh, ooh, red flag going up there, Barry. Oh, yeah. Cut to the actual party. She says he showed up on time, hung out with her family, and seemed like he was having fun. But then she realized what was going on. Her fiancé has a twin brother who looks just like him, and he sent the brother there to fill in for him. Brother, uh, Barry, this is, this is some... Just some tremendous logic on behalf of this guy. I, I oh, think yeah. you can say this. She realized it was a twin, but didn't say anything until the party was over. She drove home, found her real fiance sitting on the couch playing a video game. Wow. And acted as if he had just beaten her home from the event. She asked if he had a good time at the party. He said yes. Then she confronted him and asked him the name of the cousin he just met. <laughs> so he knew he was caught and just started laughing. She didn't find it funny and kicked him out of the house. Now her family knows and hates him for it. He says it was a harmless prank and is mad at her for making it a big deal. Now people online are telling her to just dump him. Barry, Florida man or not? Uh, so this one I do not know about. This guy doesn't sound like any sort of genius. It, it, do we know, is the couple still together or have they uh, does it not Does not reveal. Oh, because that, that sounds like something where she would walk uh, – so Florida, not Florida, Florida, not Florida. I'll say this one is Florida. 
This is not Florida. I oh. do not know the actual location. The the uh, news site is from Canada, so I'm guessing this maybe took place in Canada. But uh, wow, uh, you know, as I'm reading the story, it reminded me of the time uh, with the second Mrs. Bowdrin uh, that uh, I had planned to go to the movies with a buddy of mine. Uh, the second Mrs. Bowdrin. Uh, more a little on the more controlling side, wanting to know what I was doing all the time. Uh, so we were going to go out to a movie. It made it worse. I think I told the story. It, it was a bad movie. It was a Hook with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, a terrible movie. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't good. And so I'm supposed to meet my buddy at the movie theater. So he doesn't show. Okay. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to go watch the movie. I go watch the movie. That is a fucking terrible movie. I go home. I walk in the door and Mrs. Bowdrin's like, how you doing? I think I told this story before. How you doing? Oh, fine. Did you have a good time? And we had told her, I think we were going to the mall or something. Oh, yeah. I did a little shopping. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, everything was good, though? Yeah. And basically, Barry, she had the, the hook baited, threw it out in the water and started slowly reeling me in. And then as I walk into the bedroom, she's sitting on the couch. I hear you say, uh, oh, by the way, you got a phone call. Oh, I got a phone call. Who did I get a phone call from? Uh, Dennis. Dennis, of course, was the guy that was supposed to meet me at the movies. And it was just like one of those moments where I kind of just stopped and I went, fuck. Because <laughs> I knew she had me. And she's like, yeah, I uh, wanted to know uh, what time you were supposed to meet at the movies. And I'm like, fucking idiot. What the fuck did you do that? And I walked out. I'm like, okay, so here's what happened. Why did you lie to me? Why could you that? Oh, it was like a big crying fest, and I felt like a fucking idiot. So, not my best moment. And surprisingly, the relationship didn't last, Barry. Okay, Barry, now I will remind all of you that Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For our producer, Sweet Lou, we say thank you. Uh, hoping Sweet Lou goes out to a West Coast Pro show and he can fill us in uh, sometime in the near future. My co-host, Barry Rose, Plymouth meeting PA. I am Jeff Bowdrin. Sometimes they call me the booker. One last thing before we go, Barry. I texted you the other day. I can now reveal I am ready to start season three of Barry. No, it's not the Barry Rose life story. It's the Bill Hader story. Uh, on HBO, Barry, this is one dark fucking show. It's a really dark show, but what's I ironic in a sense is that seasons one and two was a mix of of dark, but there was comedy to it. And I think he he comes across as a really likable guy, certainly misguided and certainly not clear headed. And, and he's fucked up in a lot of ways. Season, oh, he's a hitman, so, he's, yeah. but he's a hitman, but he has a heart. And he's actually he's a fine actor. He's he loves Mr. Cousineau. He loves Sally. Uh, he appears to be a great guy, with the exception of that he kills people. Well, uh, he's good to his friends. I mean, no, he's you know he's not small a small flaw in the game. Small flaw, small flaw. However, season three is so dark. I didn't love season three like I did one and two. I still watched it. It's still there's some great you know some great stuff taking place, but. You want to see Dark? Start season three, Jeff. So for the people out there that have seen Barry, I will post uh, uh, maybe a poll in the group and, uh, and ask. And I will say, who is a better character in the show? Henry Winkler as Mr. Cousineau, who is fantastic. Steven Root as Monroe Fuchs. It's great. Who, who's basically like his handler. Yep. Uh, or Noho Hank. Is it Noho Hank? No ho Hank, North Hollywood yeah. Hank. Yep. Yeah. 
and, I, and I'm not, I can't remember the name of the actor that plays him, but he, the characters, uh, I'm not talking about who's the best actor, the, who is the best character of those three? What would you say, Bear? So for me, it's Mr. Cousineau. Noho Hank is fun. He's more flamboyant. Barry, I love you, Barry. The way you do everything. He's Come great. on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Come, come on, buddy. Oh, oh Barry, no. it's the Chechens. They're after us again. <laughs> I think you are missing your face. That's what he said after one guy got his face blown off. So he's a great character. And the guy, the, I think he's got alopecia. He's got no hair, yeah. no eyebrows, no anything. So he's odd looking, but uh, he's a great character. Monroe Fuchs. I mean, Steve. I love when he. I love when he came into the store and he's wearing the wig and the hat, and he goes, "Oh my God, yeah, Barry, it's me, Hank." <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He go, "Buddy, it's me, Hank." <laughs> so anyway, so uh, go ahead. So uh, what, uh, he's what about great? I Fuchs. I think Monroe Fuchs is Stephen Root is whether Stephen Root you know him from Office Space. They they took my stapler. And they've moved me down. Stephen Root has had this career of like 30 years. And the guy is literally, I think, one of the greats of all time. However, Henry Winkler as Gene Cousineau, in my opinion, is the difference maker in this show as well. He's yeah. that good. I, and also, I will say, uh, for those people out there who are fans of the movie Dodgeball, Stephen Root was in Dodgeball. He was yes. That too. yes. But no, Henry, I, and I sent Barry... Uh, something where Henry Winkler had appeared on the Rich Eisen show uh, and was just telling stories uh, about his days with Happy Days and in uh, um, what was it the Bobby Boucher movie uh, with Adam Sandler? Why can't I think of the name? The Water Boy. Uh, Water Boy. That's right. And but he is so di- and he's so funny. Like just like as he was talking to Rich Eisen. Like the stories he was telling, he was just such a hilarious guy. Just off the cuff, really funny. So okay. Last thing before we go, Barry, I am putting something out there for the listener. That means you, people. Today we are doing episode 247 of Breaking Cape Babe. That means we are now merely, yeah, this one's done, wanted to do the math. We're three episodes away from our 250th episode of this Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast. So I offer this question to you, the listener. You may post your response in the group if you would like. Tell me your top three episodes of Breaking K Fabe oh. with Bowdrin and Barry of all time. I want to find out which one we, we could talk about uh, uh, my daughter's wedding. We can talk about Barry revealing uh, uh, the, the pending separation and uh, future divorce at the time it happened. Uh, interviews with uh, the, the wrestlers that we've done, uh, the various celebrities that we've interviewed. What was your three best episodes, in your opinion? Post your thoughts. Maybe then we'll post a poll. We want to figure out what is the best episode of this podcast of all time. And on that note, sweet man, take this ship into port. <laughs> <laughs>